Welcome back to the Vine Church Podcast. Today, we are continuing our sermon series, Seeing Jesus, exploring the first nine chapters of Luke's Gospel. If you haven't already, you can find us on YouTube at the Vine Church Heart, and we'd love to have you join us over there. So let's read from uh, verse 18 of chapter 7. John's disciples told him about these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. And so he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you see? What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and experts in the law rejected God's purpose for them because they had not been baptized by John. So what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to one another. We played the flute for you, you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine and you say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. We're not actually going to look, I don't think, at the last uh, uh, six verses or so today, Um, but uh, let's dive in and try and get our heads around what is happening in this passage and why Luke is giving us this particular account. Now, of course, you may remember that in the previous verses in Luke chapter 7, Jesus has healed a centurion's servant and raised the widow's son. Meantime, John the Baptist is languishing in prison. We read in in Matthew's account of this that he is in prison, and Josephus tells us that the prison was the fortress of Macherius, which you can see up here. It's east of the River Jordan. It rises majestically above the Dead Sea, established as a military outpost by the Hasmoneans, but renovated into a lavish palace by Herod but it also has a darker history, a 
a dungeon attached to it where today you can still see the iron hooks. And it's here that the fearless, fiery, forthright John the Baptist was imprisoned, having condemned Herod for marrying his sister-in-law and niece Herodias. The great man of the outdoors who had roamed the wilderness and preached by the Jordan is now confined in a dingy dungeon. And it seems that as John is confined, he is also confused. In verse 19, he sends the message by his disciples to ask Jesus, are you really the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Now, you can imagine these two disciples, can't you, going up to Jesus. And it tells us that at that very time, as they came up to him, Jesus was doing a whole bunch of miracles. And you can imagine them being a little bit embarrassed. I, I do at least imagine it. You know, kind of, we're asking on behalf of someone else. Have you ever done that? You know, I just want, a friend wants to know. You know, uh, we're not asking, uh, sorry about this, Jesus. Um, we can see that you're doing all these miracles, but um, John just wants us to ask a question. And uh, so they asked this question, are you really the one? And you see, what's happening here is this. John is having a major wobble. At the fortress of Materius, he is in Doubting Castle. I mean, it's kind of a dramatic U-turn for John, isn't it, really? I mean, back in Luke chapter 3 and verses 16 and 17, when John had burst on the scene by the River Jordan with his ministry, in chapter 3, verse 16, it says that John had said to them, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So back then, John has declared courageously and confidently that this Messiah is coming who will be, who will baptize with the Spirit and with fire, who will gather the wheat in, but who will reject the chaff and have it burnt up. And so what John the Baptist said back then was kind of, I'm the farmer that sowed the seed and prepared the ground, but the time of the harvest is now near and the combine harvester is coming. And he's going to gather the wheat and throw out the chaff for it to be burnt. And John the Baptist had declared, in fact, we read, don't we? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He had been confident as Jesus appeared over the horizon to be baptized. He'd said that, and there by the waters, John had witnessed the voice from heaven he is the one, my son, with whom I am pleased. Then John was so certain, now so uncertain. Why? It begs the question, doesn't it? What is this crisis of faith that John is having and why? And I suggest a couple of reasons. I think the first is it's tough times for John the Baptist. I mean, in his heyday, he had the crowds 
the people uh, high and low had flocked to hear his ministry, to be baptized. It was success for John. Now he's locked away. Additionally, can you imagine this great outdoor guy used to sleeping al fresco under the Palestinian sky, now incarcerated in a dingy dungeon, uncertain of his future? You know, we shouldn't underestimate the impact that tough times can have on us. It can be an accumulation of small things, or it can be one big thing. Physical tiredness, fatigue, stress, emotional strain, worries, concerns, all these and more can take their toll on us. And there are a great many saints in the Bible who we find had their wobbles. Abraham, Sarah, Moses, David, Elijah. Do you remember when Elijah runs for his life into the desert, just had enough, absolutely drained and exhausted, had enough. Now John the Baptist, of all people, fearless John, falters. See, everyone has their breaking point. You know, many of us through COVID may have had times when we have been, shall we say, not at our best. Okay, yeah. Um, perhaps shown a slightly less flattering side of ourselves to those around us at times. We may have disappointed ourselves. We may have disappointed others. You know, I think there's been COVID casualties Relationships strained, confidence lost in ourselves or in others who perhaps have let us down and we've not seen the best side of them even. So John the Baptist showing a weaker side, all right, like we all do. But then there's another aspect, I think, to John the Baptist's wobble here, and that is that John had expectations of Jesus haven't been met. I mean, it sounds outrageous to say it, but he's kind of almost disappointed in Jesus. Obviously, completely unfairly, but you see, John was expecting the Messiah to come and, yes, to gather the wheat into the barns, and Jesus does seem to be doing a pretty good job of gathering the crowds, but also to burn up the chaff to judge enemies, to destroy the opposition. And John is thinking probably, where's the fire? <laughs> I mean, the Romans are still in control. I'm still in prison. You know, at Herod, who's a puppet of the Romans, behest. Jesus, you're not doing the things the way I expected you to. I'm disappointed that it's not going the way that I had hoped it would, Jesus. Jesus, you're not doing it my way. You're not fitting into my expectations of you. I don't know if you've ever read a book and then um, watched the film of the book. And you, you see this character in the, in the book, in the film, and you think, no, that's not what I imagined. That's not who I thought it was when I read the book. We, have, we create an expectation, don't we? And then it doesn't fit. And we might sort of reject the character or whatever. John the Baptist is perhaps doing that a little bit. He kind of had expectations. He'd read the book. He'd read the Old Testament. He knew. He loved Isaiah and etc. 
but perhaps he didn't understand the timing of God's work. See, we too can be surprised at times, can't we? We can be disappointed. We can be hurt by what God does and, and what he allows to happen. And we can say, you know, Jesus, this, this really wasn't in my plan. You know, um, what are you doing, God? I mean, I always imagine that this is how it would work out. And instead, I've got this. Really? Now, we should just note, by the way, that John has read the Old Testament correctly. The Messiah will judge sinners. He will bring justice and put everything right. But not yet. There's a gap between his gathering of the wheat and his burning of the chaff. Now is the time of salvation. Now is the time of mercy. Now is the time of him riding in gently, humbly on a donkey. A bruised reed he will not break. Now is the window of opportunity for anyone to respond to his grace and love. Now is the time of his compassion to a hurting world. As we saw in the, the story of the widow in the account just before, his heart went out to her because of her pain. And so often, we too can get the timing wrong. We can think that we know what God's going to do, but we can not work, get it right, or we can get the timing perhaps wrong as well. You know, now is the time, by the way, I should just say, of his compassion. Now is the time for you to come to him. He is gentle and lowly in heart. He, his yoke is easy. Come to me, Jesus said. You can come to him, whatever your need is, because he will receive you as you come, not in judgment, but in mercy. But how did Jesus respond to John the Baptist? So John the Baptist has this wobbly, perhaps because it's tough, certainly because his expectations are not being met. How does Jesus respond to him? And I would suggest that we see Jesus responding to John's, John's doubts in three ways that I think are helpful, were helpful for John, and they're how Jesus responds to us. And I think it's also helpful that we realize this is how we should treat other people as well, at least for the first two points. The first thing we see is this, that we see the good that God is doing. You see, Jesus points out to John what God is doing, the things that he should be grateful for. In verse 22, Jesus replies, yeah, go back and report what you've seen and heard, the blind, the lame, the unclean, the deaf, the dead are raised, and the greatest miracle of all, the good news is being preached to the poor. This is Jesus alluding back to the Old Testament, which John would have known, Isaiah passages, such as uh, Isaiah 35 and uh, verse 6, uh, verse 5, for example, where um, it tells us there that the Messiah would come in Isaiah 35 and the eyes of the blind would be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame would leap like a deer, the mute tongue would shout for joy and water would gush forth in the wilderness. 
And he goes on to say that the ransomed of the Lord will return and they will enter Zion with singing and everlasting joy will crown their heads and gladness and joy will overtake them and sorrow and seeing, uh, uh, sorrow and sighing will flee away. These promises and Jesus says, John, it's happening. The new day is here. The kingdom is dawning. The king is here. And he's bringing in the kingdom, sometimes stealthily, sometimes dramatically. But the evidence is irrefutable. Above all, there's a church. There's people being saved. The wheat is being gathered in. It's happening, John. Now, I think it can help us as well, can't it? When we're going through difficulties, to stop and to see what God is doing rather than just to concentrate on the bits that we wish he was doing or that he's doing differently to what we wanted. But we can get so hung up on the troubles that we don't see the good. And so we're to stop and to be grateful and to celebrate the good that God is doing. There's a song that I, I quite like by Chris Tomlin where he says, it's called Gifts of God, and he says, when you, look, when you take a look around, it ain't hard to find. Everybody's got things that money can't buy. The best things in life are straight from his hand. Hallelujah. Every day's a gift from God. And so he shows him the good things that God is doing. Open your eyes. Look at what God's doing. He's doing so much, isn't he? Secondly, the second thing we can do is this. See the good in others. And that's what Jesus does regarding John the Baptist. Once the disciples have disappeared off, Jesus has a word with the crowd about John the Baptist. And he bigs John the Baptist up big time, doesn't he? He shows incredible grace towards this guy despite his wobble. In verses 24 to 28, he says, you know, look, um, was, who is this John? Did you see a reed coming out, swayed by the wind? No, no. John was not a flip-flop messenger. He spoke an uncompromising message. He wasn't swayed around by public opinion. No, no, you saw someone strong and courageous. Did you see a man dressed in fine clothes? No, not a smooth, slick, sleek soft operator with fancy suits. I mean, this guy wore desert couture. He had a shabby, chic, camel hair kind of vibe about him. I mean, his message was consistent with his lifestyle. There was an integrity about John that went with his message. And what did you see then? Was he a prophet? Yes, he was. In fact, more than just a prophet. He was the Malachi messenger. I mean, Malachi had said in the Old Testament there would be a special one who would appear just before the Messiah, who would stand at the pivotal point in history, at the end of the Old Covenant, at the start of the New Covenant, who would be the finisher of the Old and the forerunner of the New. And he, John, was that man. And so in verse 28, praise indeed, he says, among those born of woman, there is no one 
greater than he. I mean, that's praise, isn't it? Now, by the way, it doesn't necessarily mean there that he's saying, you know, John was greater in character than Abraham and Esther, but that in salvation history, he stood in closest proximity to the dawning of the new age, to the Messiah, and he was the one who pointed people most immediately to Jesus. So he was uniquely privileged and great in the scheme of God's salvation. But he certainly was also a, a great character. And Jesus kind of honors this guy. And I want us to note this. It's helpful that we are aware of this. You know, despite his recent faltering, Jesus chooses to call out his faith. And you find that that is God's way with people, isn't it? Our sins are covered and our faith prevails. We find for example, in Hebrews chapter 11, there's this long list. There's this hall of fame. Do you remember in Hebrews 11, all these great heroes of the Old Testament? And every time the writer notes their example of faith, it doesn't really kind of mention some of the glaring failings that we're all aware of when we've read the Old Testament. I mean, even Rahab, the prostitute, is there as a, a great woman of faith. Now, we know God hates sin. That's why John the Baptist is in prison, actually, because he pointed out sin in Herod's life. But what we find is that those who trust in Christ alone for their righteousness experience a grace and a patience from God that is just amazing, amazing grace. Isn't that true? That's what we experience. That's how God treats you. You know, think, oh, all the things I've done, all the stuff I've gone through, this, I don't feel, I feel a bit, you know. God says, you know, actually in verse 28, Jesus said, what, the one who is least in the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. You are greater than John the Baptist, as far as the Bible says, as according to Jesus. Uh, well, yeah, there is that as well. <laughs> It's amazing. It is amazing, isn't it? It's hard to even believe, but it's so true. Jesus said that he who's in the kingdom is greater than, he, uh, than John the Baptist was. Now, John the Baptist was in the kingdom, by the way, as well. But there's a sense in which because of the grace of God, because of the righteousness that we have been given, we are uh, righteous before God. And we can treat one another that way as well. Tells us in Romans 12 to honor one another above ourselves. It tells us in Ephesians 4, verse 32, to be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. We have been forgiven. We treat one another in the same way. And so if someone has showed you their less flattering side recently, maybe take a little bit of time to understand why. What were they going through? But more importantly, to understand God's unconditional grace towards us all. So finally, let's have a look at the third and final thing that Jesus did, which I think is absolutely powerful. 
And um, I'm going to probably unpack this more next week, actually, because time is moving on. But I want us to see, thirdly, that Jesus said, wanted him to see that God's ways are best. God's ways are blessed. Jesus says in verse 23, blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Blessed is the man who does not take offense on account of Christ. And the picture there is a graphic image. It's like the trapping of a bird. So when a bird depresses a bait stick and triggers a trap, and it's kind of like Jesus is saying, John, don't get triggered by the way that I'm doing things. Don't, don't get trapped because I'm doing things differently. Don't let disappointment and discouragement distract you and distance you from God. Don't take offense at the way God is doing things. You see, Jesus might not represent the kind of God that they wanted, but he is the kind of God that they needed. One who does things his way, in his time, out of his infinite wisdom for his glory and for our ultimate good. And we've got to believe that. We've got to say, Lord, I trust you. You are good. You're doing things your way. I submit to you as my Messiah and as my Lord. And in verse 29 to 30, there's an intriguing verse that talks about those who have been baptized by John accept what Jesus is doing. Those who haven't been baptized by John miss God's plan for themselves. So there's this sense here, and with this I'll finish, that those who are high and mighty, those who consider themselves to be okay, master of their own destiny, the proud and pompous who refuse to be humiliated in a dirty river in front of a crowd wearing their fancy suits, those people, when they were not baptized, they've shown that their hearts were not submissive. And so now that the Messiah is not doing things their way, they throw their toys out the pram because, well, God, I you know, there's this lack of kind of humility. Do you see what I'm saying? Therefore, there's a lack of ability to accept his way is right. On the other hand, those who had submitted to the baptism of repentance under John, who had humbled themselves, who had died to themselves and their agendas and said, okay, God, your way, not my way. Those people, when they hear Jesus' words, they're winnable. They're, they can submit. Yeah, they have struggles. We get confused. We have wobbles. We ask our questions. But when they heard Jesus' words, they acknowledged that God's ways were right. If we have that humble heart, then we will say, okay, Lord, not my will be done, but your will be done. I'm not going to be thrown by what's happened. I'm going to keep trusting you. I'm going to keep saying, you are good. You are good. Everything 
you do is good. All your ways are just and true. And I will trust you in everything. So can we pray together? Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your grace towards us. I want to pray for everyone here, Lord God, that they would know your amazing grace. Where they feel they've failed, may they know that you cover over their sin as they put their trust in you. May they know that they stand righteous before you. Lord, we just want to give anything to you that we know has let us down. And we just say, God, help us to trust you. And we pray that you'd help us to be gracious towards one another, to be forgiving. Oh God, to express to others the love that you've expressed to us again and again. And Lord, we do pray that you'd help us to submit to your ways, even when they're not what we expected, what we hoped for. But help us, Lord, to say, okay, your will be done. I trust you, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.